Well, it's 10.01, so, and hey, people are, this is going to be one of those Sunday schools where we're just going to greet new faces all the way to 11. That's uh, one of those happy, happy mornings. Um, bless other flexible, right, Doug? That's the 10th of the Beatitudes. Um, <laughs> but they should be like Gumby. All right, I hope you don't remember that. That's not what you came to church for. Sorry. No, no, it was my idea to build on your silly idea. Okay. Uh, we are in a series of Sunday School Lessons through the Beatitudes, and we're getting close to the end. Uh, we are this week to the second to last of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, let's pray and ask for the Lord uh, to direct us today. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day, and we thank you for this special Lord's Day, lots of special things going on, and we thank you um, that not every Lord's Day is the same. Uh, we thank you for that variety. We pray that you would help us, though, to treasure what is always the same, and that is your Son is with us by his Spirit, and he promises us eternal life because he has secured it for us through the cross and through the empty tomb. And we pray that as we consider your son's words together this morning, that they would minister to us. Let them not sit on the surface of things, but let the seeds of the truth of the kingdom of God work deep into the soil of our hearts and bear fruit. Uh, even today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. With um, each week, we have read together um, the list of Beatitudes to whatever Beatitude we've come to. And I've tried to also grab context from different places. So let's do that again. Um, Matthew 5, of course, is where we're headed. But before we get to Matthew 5, let's really get some context and go to Matthew 1. Now, don't worry. We're not going to read every word of Matthew 1 through 4. We'll jump around a bit. Um, but in jumping around a bit, I think it helps us to put the Beatitudes, especially this one today, in its proper frame. Um, Matthew 1, first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Whew, and what a sordid affair that was. Uh, if you remember that from the book of Genesis, Genesis 38 in particular, uh, is the key passage. Um, some embarrassing details about Judah and the kind of life that he lived. Um, and it brings up an important point here about this genealogy, which sets the stage for all of the Gospel of Matthew. I think I mentioned this the first week, maybe it was the second week, that uh, the genealogies in the Bible, I, I think they're no one's favorite part of the Bible, but they are part of the Bible, and each one of them is written with a great deal of intention. Um, every genealogy in Scripture is actually an argument. And that argument begins to come to the surface as you look at the unique details that are found in that list of names. It's never just a list of names. It's always a list of names that's pursuing some purpose. What's unique about this list is that it includes the, name, the names of women. And every time a woman's name is included, it is a nod. It is a gesture to a passage in Scripture that's less than complementary to the history 
of the people of God. Um, the Bible is in large part the history of Israel, but unlike other histories, which bend over backwards to praise the lineage that has produced the nation, um, it, it paints a picture that has warts and all in it. Um, and there's a purpose to that. So as we continue to read, and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, you know who Rahab was, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, Ruth in the Old Testament is a, a model of virtue, but the whole story surrounding her happens because a family within Israel departed from the covenant community of faith uh, to join themselves to the Moabites, she herself a Moabitess. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Well, that's a sordid story as well. On and on it goes. Now, you may wonder, why is the lineage of Jesus being told with these details? All of it is a setup for us being able to fully appreciate where the actual narrative begins in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 18 now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary was found, uh, had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a And how that Jesus calls us all to be pure in heart. Good synonym for that is holiness, which is a theme that's found throughout Scripture. Um, Jesus wants his followers to have a heart for holiness. Um, and when you get serious about holiness and really start to pursue holiness with all of your heart um, in this fallen world, you uh, get confronted with another kind of temptation. Um, and that is when you really get serious about holiness, it's easy to become a contentious person. It's easy to become a divisive person. Um, I remember uh, years ago, a pastor friend of mine talked about independent Baptist preachers. And he felt like he could talk about it because he was one. And, um, and he said that the problem with so many of them is that their favorite verse in the Bible is come out from among them and be nasty. Yeah. Well, that's a stereotype for sure. But it's a stereotype that has some basis in fact, which is how all stereotypes are, right? We've all known our share of said preachers None in this room, of course, or even down the hallway are like that. Um, and I think that that reputation, even where, where it's well-earned, it doesn't come from personality so much as it comes from a concern uh, to live by that previous beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the holy, I guess you could say. Um, re remember that the core idea behind that word righteousness is this idea of conformity to a standard. The core idea behind this idea of holiness, the word holiness, is uh, separateness. Being separate from all that defiles, being separate from all that is evil and all that's wicked. And when you really get serious about that, it's easy to go overboard and separate things that really should be held together. Uh, to separate two brothers for whom both of them, Christ has died. To separate two sisters from one another in the Lord, both of whom... Christ has died for. It's a misstep, but it's an easy misstep 
to make, out of a concern to be holy, out of a concern to be pure in heart, um, we end up doing damage to other people, taking delight in discord when we ought to be grieved by discord. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what he's saying when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, and then right on the heels of that, blessed are the peacemakers. He wants us to be pure, but a certain kind of purity is what he looks for, a purity that is peaceful at the same time. Now, this does not mean that conflict is always wrong. Um, when he calls believers, his followers, to be peacemakers, he doesn't mean that if ever they find themselves in the middle of a conflict, they have somehow failed. Um, if that's the case, then what would he say to John the Baptist, <laughs> whose words we just read a few moments ago? His ministry was uh, often characterized by great conflict. Jesus' ministry was often characterized by great conflict. Um, when people think that blessed are the peacemakers is referring to at all costs pursuing a way of life that always avoids conflict, that always avoids contention, that always avoids confrontation, they, they misunderstand what Jesus is, and they misunderstand the word. Now, it's natural for us to do so. If you look up peace in the dictionary, English dictionary, uh, you get a definition like uh, tranquility, absence of strife, Absence of contention, uh, freedom from disturbance is another definition. And that's part of what Jesus is referring to, but it's not at the core of what Jesus is referring to. The background for the word that Jesus uses here is that Hebrew word shalom. And if you know much about the Hebrew word shalom, it's not about the absence of something negative. It's about the presence of something wonderful um, that leads in various contexts, to the absence of strife, in the absence of conflict. Um, we, we get at this when we look at the Old Testament background for this particular beatitude. If you look at the commentary literature on this beatitude, almost all of them, if they have any detail that's given to it, they're going to mention two verses from the book of Isaiah. Uh, the first one would be Isaiah 9-6, which refers to the Messiah as the Prince of Peace. And the other one, and we talked about that verse. I think it was on the first week we gave attention to that verse, so I won't return to that. But the other verse that's often referenced is Isaiah 52 and verse 7. And the significance of this verse is so great that, that we ought to look at it. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. And again, if I didn't have the ease of access that digital devices give, I would find it much more rapidly. Uh, let's see. You really have to scroll in a digital copy of Isaiah. And it goes on and on. Yeah, Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Um, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And that, that phrase is uh, the phrase that's in some translations rendered the gospel. Um, and it occurs that way in the New Testament too when he gets quoted. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. You know, every part of the Bible is beautiful. Not, not every part of the Bible rises to the same level of beauty and literary quality, but I just have to pause here. Uh, feet are not beautiful, right? Um, the human face is often beautiful. And, of course, in this room, every face is beautiful. But the human foot is not. Uh, very functional, but um, 
And I think that this is not lost in the poetry of Isaiah and on Isaiah who's here speaking for God. There's a, there's a play that's going on here that the good news that's being spoken of in this passage is so glorious. It is so marvelous. It even makes the feet of the person bearing the message of the good news beautiful. What on its own is not exactly beautiful becomes beautiful because of what it bears. Who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Um, This passage is referring to um, a great eschatological event that's still future, when God will, um, upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. And he goes on to say, this is what I preach everywhere that I go. The Gentiles receive it very often. The Jews characteristically don't receive it. And in the middle of that, he invokes this verse right here, of all things. Uh, Isaiah 52, 7. um, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Different translations render it differently, but all that to say, what he's saying is, in my ministry stomping all the way through Asia Minor and throughout Macedonia and throughout uh, the Greek peninsulas. I'm doing this. I'm doing Isaiah 52, 7. I'm proclaiming to people, your God reigns. I'm proclaiming to people peace. I'm proclaiming to people great news of happiness. I'm I'm publishing the news of salvation. Now you might think, well, what, (laughs) what does what Paul is doing have to do with that last great day of judgment and salvation when when people will run and spread the news to these villages and towns. Well, it has everything to do with it. There there is no message of peace and happiness and salvation. There's no message available of your God reigning to anyone in that last great day unless Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, Unless it really is true that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. And that, that statement, your God reigns, does that not have everything to do with the resurrection and whether the resurrection is true? Your God reigns over all of your enemies. And the, the last great enemy is not someone in Rome. It's not someone on the Sanhedrin. It's death. Jesus conquered death for us. In other words, you could, with the knowledge of the New Testament, you could write in on top of this statement who says "Design, your God reigns. You could write these words, the tomb is empty who declares to Zion, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Your God reigns. That is the message uh, that will be proclaimed someday, and it's the message that we proclaim even now. And it is a message of salvation. It is a message of peace. And that brings me back to this. What is peace? Um, Shalom in that Hebrew sense, is not just the absence of conflict, it's not just tranquility, it's wholeness, it's health. It's things being the way they ought to be. And that's what it means when God reigns. When God finally defeats all of his enemies, the reason that's good news is that things are finally the way they're supposed to be. Things are finally whole. Things are finally healthy. And that is the connection that we find Right here, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's not saying blessed are people that avoid conflict at all costs. He's saying blessed are those who pursue wholeness in their own life and the lives of those that are under their influence. Blessed are those who pursue health by God's own definition of what true soul health is. Blessed are those who, in everything that they do, 
They're trying to make all the circumstances around them and their influence to be the way that they are supposed to be. Pressing things toward the ideal that God has planned for them. Uh, This beatitude is about peace, but it's not just about peace by that definition. It's also about making peace. Um, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who make peace. Blessed are those who pursue healing in this world of hurt and woe. Blessed are those who live in such a way they're not trying to hurt this world. They're trying to bring healing to this world. They're not trying to hurt other people. They're trying to bring healing into the lives of other people people by God's own definition of of healing. How do we do that? In the message of the New Testament, there's, I think, two key obvious ways. The first is evangelism. We share the gospel with people. Um, I mean, it's kind of implied. If um, Isaiah 52.7 has any present tense application, certainly it has applications to us sharing the gospel with other people who proclaim to others the tomb is empty, who proclaim to others your God reigns, who proclaim to others that if you are a thirst for wholeness, there is a way to be whole. You must seek it by God's own path. You must seek it on God's own terms, but there is a way uh, to wholeness. This also brings us to, don't chain them, yeah, Um, In the context of studying the scripture together, um, answer their questions and share with them the wholeness that God offers them through belief in his promises, belief in his word. Everyone is thirsty for wholeness, but they don't know where to find it. And in that kind of context, we can very, I guess you would use a worn out term, authentically uh, share with them that wholeness can be found, but it's found only as we seek it on God's own terms through repentance and faith in the gospel. Peacemakers seek peace also as they attempt to edify their fellow believers. I think of Ephesians 4, verse 3. Paul says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep Uh, The fact that he uses the word keep demonstrates that we don't make peace um, amongst one another in the church of God by ourselves. Um, Someone else has made the peace, and it's our job to keep it. We don't produce it. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 19, that it's Jesus who made peace by the blood of his cross and has made us all one against all odds, against all that you would expect because of all of the infighting and selfishness and strife that's in this world because of sin. He overcomes all of those barriers, and by the blood of his cross, he makes peace. It's not our job to make the peace. It's our job to to keep it. But Paul uses the word endeavoring because it's hard work. Yeah. Ain't no trouble like church trouble, right? Whoo-wee. Boy, how many times have I had a conversation with someone and it's, uh, uh, you know, a conversation in confidence and I'll be talking about, you know, this person can't get along with this other person. What do we do? And, and sometimes people will look at all that and say, and these people are Christians. And, um, yeah, there is an irony in that, that, that um, Christians who have known the Lord for a long time, who have prayed for years, have memorized a lot of scripture. How can they have strife among themselves? And in a ministry, it's very natural. It's fallen, but it's very natural. 
The more committed you are to the ministry of a local church, the more invested you are in your own ideas as to how that church could be better, right? Oh, I've got some knowing looks all over the room. Yeah. The more we give ourselves to the ministries of a local church, as we should, the higher our expectations that the ideas that we have that are pure gold should be seen for what they are, pure gold, implemented, taken seriously. Right, right, right. Um, In other words, the more committed we are to ministry, the easier it is uh, to not endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. I'm not saying that um, we shouldn't be invested in our ideas. We should be. Uh, We should have a a strong commitment uh, to these things. But there are other things that we should be committed to more, and that is the unity of the Spirit. What are you guys doing back there? Oh, you're seeing if I will practice what I preach. Yeah. I think these slides are a terrible idea. I think we would all be much closer to the gate of heaven without any projectors. In Okay. Dabbering to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, so, uh, again, it's not that we're not committed uh, to our ideas for improvement. It's not that we're not committed to our own role, uh, but we see all of that in, in proper context. Um, Philippians 2. Let's look at that one. You know this passage, right? Philippians 2. Oh, you can't beat just reading it. Let's just read the 11 verses here at Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on his own interest, but also... So it's not that you can't look on your own interest. The word also is here. But also on the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What a beautiful passage. It's a hymn of praise to our Lord for his humility and how the Father exalted him in response to his humble obedience even to the point of death and of all kinds of death, death on a cross. But don't forget the envelope that that fits into. That glorious hymn of praise to the Father and the Son is in an envelope of exhortation. Be of the same mind, be in full accord with one another, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. 
Let each not look on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. And as we do that, um, we are keeping, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. D.A. Carson, in his study on the Sermon on the Mount, he had this paragraph that I just thought was choice. The Christian's role as a peacemaker extends to lessening tensions, seeking solutions, ensuring that communication is understood. Perhaps his most difficult assignments will take place on those occasions when he is personally involved. Then he will remember that the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. That sounds like something from the book of James, probably because it is, James 1.20. And also that a soft answer turns away wrath. He will not confuse issues, even important issues, with his own ego image. And fearful lest he be guilty of generating more heat than light, he will learn to lower his voice and smile more broadly in proportion to the intensity of the argument. Well, that's hard to do. But I would submit to you, the more we work at it day by day, the better we get at it the more we grow as peacemakers. Jesus has a choice blessing for those who pursue peacemaking. And that is, they will be called sons of God. Ah, that means a bunch of things, but it means at least these two things, likeness to God and closeness to God. By invoking um, this language, Jesus is inviting us to consider the pleasures and the blessings evermore of being like God, as it is appropriate for a creature to be like the Creator, um, and being close to God. One of the blessings of going to church here at Gateway, there's lots of young people here, lots of young people that are in college. That's a blessing. Uh, One of the things that's really great about that is that many of these young people are children of people I know, children of people that I knew, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I, actually, I was in college only about five or six years ago, but thank you for laughing. Um, And it's great when you see someone walk through the door and you're like, I know whose kid you are. Yeah, you don't even have to tell me. I know, yeah. You know that statement, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Sometimes it does, but um, how many times I've had that experience, and my wife and I will laugh and we'll needle each other, and eh, the apple does not. Look at how she talks. Look at her intonation when she talks about this or that. Look how she walks across the room, or look at, look at his face. He, you know, just like so-and-so. Uh, sons are like their fathers in many ways. Daughters are like their mothers in many ways. It's one of the blessings of living in this world that God's called us to. Um, But it is our desire that that happen also with us with regard to God. Like Peter and John when they stood before the Sanhedrin and they're listening to them give answers and they can tell that their answers are carefully thought out um, and well-grounded in Scripture. And yet they are unlearned men and then they took note of them. They have been with Jesus. And we live in such a way that people recognize the family resemblance. The more you pursue peacemaking... As difficult as that may be at points, the more people recognize the family resemblance. This one has been with God. This one has walked with the Savior. Likeness to God, but also closeness with God. 
What is the heart of God like when he looks and he sees in our lives peacemaking and a tendency and an inclination toward peacemaking bubbling up in our lives and how we deal with people and how we deal with conflict? Uh, just this morning, my oldest, his name is Judah, and um, he's in med school in Israel. He just finished a month of ministry in Turkey, and he sent uh, just last night the final update. They finished their, their ministry, and it was a long update. And my wife was reading it while we were driving in here. I almost hit a tree because uh, I was crying so much. It was, he's just, he was talking about the people he witnessed to, even in a country like, like Turkey, uh, talking about how guarded and afraid they are to interact with Christians, and yet if you break down certain barriers, how they begin to open up. Um, and he gave all these names, like listening to Jonathan talk about names of people that he's trying to break through on, and the gospel has like made it this far, and oh, that it would make it this far. And he started quoting verse after verse from Paul's epistles and from the book of Revelation about how God wants to bring salvation to all people everywhere, even amongst people, groups that you would think would never be interested in, in the gospel. Culturally, they have every reason to be opposed to the advance of the gospel, but they're hungry for what the gospel has to say, and it shows. And, and, uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, is this my son saying this? And then I remembered that I'm talking about this this morning. And I just got, I, I got so thrilled. Um, you, you know how it is when you're a parent... Um, you have so many anxieties. I'll leave it at that, okay? Uh, but so many worries. Are they going to what we're saying, what we're trying to get them to understand, what we want them to appreciate? Is this ever going to sink in? And then you have moments like this where you realize it's not that he has my faith. It's that the faith of Scripture, it has become his own. And in that moment, I got so excited, I could have jumped with a single leap across the Atlantic, <laughs> across the Mediterranean, landed in Israel at his front door, and I, I would have broken down the door if I could and given him a hug so firm it would break every bone in his body. That's how God feels about peacemakers. Uh, he sees the family resemblance of the life of God in our lives and in our souls. And everything in his being goes out to the beauty of that, to the salvation that that demonstrates is going on in the soul.